and welcome to Bluegrass Stories with uh, Katie Daly and me. I am Howard Parker. The New Grass Revival was Claire Armbruster's introduction to bluegrass music. Several years after that occasion, Claire found herself volunteering at Merlefest and being mentored by the legendary B-Towns, that festival's founder. That volunteer gig launched the career of one of today's most foremost event planners and producers. Over the years, Claire Armbruster has learned every facet of major event production. She has assumed the role of artist relations, artistic director, stage management, award show production, and all manner of events in traditional and non-traditional venues. These days, Claire leads Planning Stages Incorporated, a premier company focusing on event consulting, artist relations, planning, contracts, on-site management, and more, much, much more. In this podcast, Katie Daly talks about event planning and production with Claire Armbruster. My family was not involved in music, um, and I, I got involved in the bluegrass music world in 1986 when I went to a place in Bostick, North Carolina, called Green Acres Music Hall, and I saw the band New Grass Revival, which then consisted of Sam Bush, Bela Fleck, Pat Flynn, and... Um, John Cowan and the place was crowded and I was sitting at the band's feet and it changed my life and my husband at that time and I we started um, following the band around the southeast and um, then we learned about Tony Rice and we started following him around the northeast and my ex-husband was a taper he you know taped live music and he had started doing that with the Grateful Dead. He was a big, you know, deadhead. And so I was exposed to a lot of Grateful Dead music at that time as well, which I learned to love and appreciate. So um, with that, um, I, I, I found myself without a job. I was in advertising uh, sales. Like I worked for an ad agency and, you know, go to the client, get the ideas, take them back to the graphic designer and, you know, work between the designer and the, and the client. And... Um, I, I, I left that one of those, I left my job and I didn't have a job. And um, so I went up to Merlefest. I'd been every year since it started in 1988. And um, I talked to B. Towns about volunteering and B was quick to, he was the director of the festival then. And this was in 1991. And he was quick to latch on to anyone that said volunteer. And so I started volunteering by just entering survey data for the festival. And um, then I would start going up there, um, like right before the festival, like, like in January, because the festival's in April. And I'd start doing, um, you know, entering, you know, new addresses for, you know, uh, the database for, you know, festival fans. And then I started sitting with B in his office when he was booking the artist. and. Um, he taught me everything about booking and he would give, he would, he would like initiate the conversation with, with the agent and then, um, I would take over at the contract phase and then I would work out all the details and that's what artist relations is. You're, um, you, you know, you're advancing all the artists to the festival. Advancing means, um, that you're giving them the advance information that they need to get to the festival, like where they're, the hotel they're staying at. At that time, we were booking flights. So I would book flights for them. Um, 
I, I eventually ended up handling hotels. People started retiring and the jobs that they were doing for the festival got um, put in my lap. This was huge responsibility. Were you still a volunteer? No, I was being paid then. Okay. I was, I, by that time, I was part-time being paid. And at the same time, my ex-husband and I started a nonprofit organization for music in Hickory, North Carolina, where I grew up. And um, it was called Acoustic Stage. And so I learned a lot at the festival. I learned a lot about how to book. And um, while my ex-husband was doing the booking, I was doing a lot of the advance work and a lot of the membership work and other things to keep the organization going. And it was it was kind of you know tough tough going there for a while because Hickory wasn't a big uh, bluegrass uh, city, and so um, you know we had we had we had a lot of shows that didn't didn't sell very well, but we kept at it, and eventually um, it started you know taking off and doing better and it was a lot of fun and so uh, I started working full-time for the festival in 2000 and it was great I moved up to Wilkesboro and I just loved being in the atmosphere and I, I was able to come to IBMA and Americana conferences and networking with people and there's so many great people in this um, you know in this genre of music and all the artists are so thoughtful and kind and you know people will often ask me do you have any stories you can tell about the artists like I'm not not really because they're all so good you know there aren't a lot of egos um of course you know every now and then you'll cross one but you just kind of shrug it off and move, move on um so um, I left Merle Fest in 2006 after I'd booked the 2007 festival and I moved to Nashville. Started working with Keith Case and I um, co-managed Guy Clark and Sierra Hall with, with Keith. I mostly handled their day-to-day -day operations which means you know when they were touring I would um, do all the advance work. I'd call the venue, you know get their hotel information, um, you know, get their guest information to the venue, um, give them, you know, the, the itineraries for the tour, um, work with them while they were on the road if they need, had questions that needed to be answered. Um, and it was a lot of fun. But I started, after seven years of being at Keith's, I started missing the live music world mm -hmm. and producing live music. And I've never been someone that wanted to be on the stage, but I love being behind the scenes and making things happen. Do you play any instruments? I don't. Okay. I just have a love of the music. And um, so, uh, you know, we just, I just started, uh, Steve Johnson actually had started doing this on his own and he um, graciously encouraged me to do it and supported me for a whole year. We had a regular Wednesday morning phone call for a year and he would give me leads and we'd talk about insurance and um, just different business aspects and um, and connections and he he's always been a great friend and uh, colleague so um, I learned a lot from him and you know it was slow going the first year I didn't have that much to do I was really nervous because I didn't have anything to do um, but eventually um, I 
you know, started booking Gray Fox, Mary Daub, um, asked me to, you know, help her out. And it was, you know, I was so honored to be working for that really beautiful and well-established festival. Oh, it's a, well, it's a, it's a great organization, friendly, open to everyone, and, and really take care of the artists and all the volunteers. I mean, she feeds all those people. I don't know if people realize how much work goes into maintaining her army of volunteers, but she treats mm -hmm. everyone very well. And she particularly cares about her audience. Mm -hmm. She wants to protect her audience, especially now with climate change. She's put a, a covered stage for the main stage during the day, which, um, oddly enough, saved us the first year we did it about um, three or four years ago because we had torrential downpours and we couldn't have had a daytime performance on our outdoor stage, but we were able to do it on the covered stage. And um, she's uh, been a mentor to me and um, to many. She's so knowledgeable and intuitive and um, just has a really great way of doing business. And she shares that with everyone. She's, she's a remarkable woman. Yes, she is. So uh, it sounds like you had a lot of on-the-job training. Was on there the anything, any schooling that would have uh, learned you better or... What would people, if they were interested in doing what you do, might they study at school? Well, today there are many programs, you know, that teach music business. You know, Belmont University in Nashville, Vanderbilt University, um, East Tennessee State University, um, you know, I think Berkeley uh, College of Music in Boston. But when I was going to college in the 70s, you know, Ideally, I would have loved to have known if there was, you know, a nonprofit arts management program, um, because I love the nonprofit world. Um, but but there wasn't anything that I knew of. I think back then there were so many. We were so limited in what we could study. Mm -hmm. um, but today it's you know there, you know there's so many wonderful options and opportunities for people, um, and a lot of music musical opportunities. Well, we discussed this the other day, and one thing I found in my career is never say, that's not my job. That's right. You have to pitch in, and no matter how lowly you think the job is, you know, do it and learn from it. Yes. And keep things going. Yes, and I've done that too, and I've had some that I didn't particularly care for, like putting all those reserved chairs out at Merlefest. Uh, <laughs> How many chairs was that? <laughs> uh, there are, uh, there, at that time I think there were 4,000. Oh and God. I didn't put them all out, but I helped, you know, place them and mark, mark off where they go. And, you know, B, you know, B Towns, a great man, great mentor. He said, this is how you learn, you know, and I, I was grouchy about it, but I did it. <laughs> and I learned, you know, it's a lot of hard work, and I learned how, how reserve seating works. Right. And uh, does, does that transfer over to theaters? Yes. Okay. Yes, it does. Um, all this work transfers to, you know, small venues. I've, I've booked uh, the Franklin Theater in Franklin. I did that for the past six years until recently, and uh, learned a 
I was working for Dan Hayes, as you know, uh, who is the former director of IBMA, knew him through IBMA, and he, because of that uh, connection, he called me when I started my business, and we talked about how an independent contractor for the theater would work, and I learned a lot from him about booking and understanding your audience, how to use Polestar for you know, looking at the artist numbers, how to look at social media to look at the artist numbers, because the more uh, you know tickets they sell and the more fans they have, the better your show is going to do in in a theater or a performing arts center. Right. So, how do you pick an audience, uh, an artist for an audience? Is uh, mostly through subscription that you get to know who they come out for, or? Well, sometimes you can do sur surveys for that. Um, really popular artists that have name recognition are your best bet. But checking those Polestar numbers and checking the social media numbers um, and even Spotify numbers can help you see how many hits they're getting and how popular they are. It's really good to check social media too to see how active they are in promoting themselves on social media. Because if they're not promoting themselves, it's more difficult for you to promote them. And I don't think very many artists realize that it has to be a cooperative effort. You know, they think you're just supposed to bring in the, you know, people in the seats and stuff, or um, they don't realize that they've got to share their audience with us so we know how to get to them. Yep. And, and most of the younger artists are really good at it. It's, you know, the older artists that are maybe a little hes hesitant to jump on that bandwagon. But, you know, a lot of them do. A lot of them catch on to it and do it. And, I mean, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I'm not good at it. I It frustrates me to have to deal with social media. So for the venues I work for, there's somebody that, that handles that. Artistic director, does that mean, let's define what these jobs are. Okay, artistic director means that you're doing the programming. You're picking the talent. And with the festivals I work for, and I'm, I'm really a team player. I like to have people on the team that have input and we have discussions about you know this how this is going to work and how that's going to work um, we don't necessarily do themed uh, you know things for our festival I know some festivals do do that and they have a lot of great success with it mm -hmm. um, you know Wintergrass does that and Patrice does a remarkable job with you know kind of having a theme for her festival and and relating that throughout the, the weekend um, through through her um, program and telling about each artist and how that fits into their theme um, with with Gray Fox, it's more of a it's more of a feeling like what's what how we feel it fits together, and um, you know with festivals you have the, a great opportunity for um, booking artists that no one's ever heard of where you can't really do that so well in a venue on a single show because you've got your headliners at the festival that sell the tickets and then you provide opportunities for your audience to discover new music by booking you know, wonderful new bands like we see here at IBMA this week. So uh, when you have booked a band and they're new to the audience and they go over really well, how, uh, what, how do you move them up into a different stage into you know, maybe someday becoming a headliner or putting them in that direction? What decisions do you make about how well they go over? Um, well, you look at their record sales and uh, 
audience reaction, like audience will post on social media, you know, how much they like a band. And uh, of course, Mary Daub's reaction, which is always intuitively on the money. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we had, for instance, we had Billy Strings uh, for two years in 2017 and 18 as artists in residence. And Mary saw the potential in Billy very early. And he was a huge hit. He stayed all weekend. And we had a lot of unannounced um, performances with other, you know, artists and bands, and he loved it, and it was it was a lot of fun. And so I think, you know, it's it's really a, a goal of festivals like Gray Fox to provide young artists with a platform to get their music to a larger audience and hopefully, um, you know, uh, catapult their career to the next level. And of course, then, of course, we definitely want to have them back, you know, when that happens. Well, I've noticed uh, the Gray Fox can kind of uh, turn on a dime when, uh, if the news is unfortunate that we lose an artist, they do a tribute set to him, bringing all of the uh, musicians up on stage. And, you know, that's very spontaneous kind mm -hmm. of thing. But that, that's they all leave planned. us little. It's all planned. Yeah. Real, but how much? There are other things that you do that aren't. You mean in terms of artist relations, or no? For, I mean, as uh, getting people up on the stage to do things. Um, you have to plan all that in advance. Generally, sometimes it'll happen on the fly at the festival, mm -hmm. but uh, you. It, it seems spontaneous to the audience, but we we're planning it in advance. We're saying, hey, can. You know, Jerry Douglas sitting with Sam Bush for the finale, and I've had um, Daryl Anger actually put together a, a, an entire finale, um, bringing up artists that, you know, he wanted to. And I think we did a tribute, that was a tribute to, I, I want to say Ralph Stanley, but I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, but things like that, those, are, those really need to be planned. And the artists will do... You know rehearsals backstage beforehand they're pretty quick uh, or maybe earlier in the day they can get together and do a little wood shedding right. and um, but but generally those things are planned and they'll have a few people that'll jump on unplanned sometimes but well you fooled me <laughs> yay <laughs> but I did want to say I thought they just felt the spirit and all jumped up there and started playing Isn't that cool yeah they were great <laughs> how did they do that now I know so um, I wanted to explain too with artist relations, you know, it's um, making sure the artists are taken care of from the time they get to the festival. They've got all their advance information all the way in through to the stage, like their gear is taken care of. They know where to go to, you know, change clothes and do their, you know, rehearsal with the band right before they go on stage, where to eat, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, um do you hand the paycheck over when they arrive, or do they have to do their set before they... They, they usually have to do their set. They don't have to. It's, I think it's just standard that they do their set, and then they're paid. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, sometimes they'll, they'll, in advance, they'll work out getting the check mm -hmm. in advance before they play, because they've got to leave right after, or something like that. But it's all very, you know, professional and above board. Um, you... You pay the artist in a private location. Uh, you don't just you know walk up to them backstage and hand them a check. 
Um, it's just very private. You find the person that's, you know in advance who the person you're supposed to deal with on the money end. It'll be the artist manager or it could be somebody in the band and you go behind closed doors and and give them their check. Well, you mentioned something uh, the, to me the other day about contracts and that you don't have to give them what they ask for, that you can t explain that. Um, it's, 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 it's a uh, function of what the festival can do for the artist. And generally the contracts that you get are, um, are you know, contracts for a, a venue, like a performing arts center or a theater. And they have very spe specific requests for the hospitality and rooms and uh, lots of other things that are in there um, that, that you, you can't do at a festival. You can't feed the band uh, you know, the steak dinner that they want with salad and dessert and, and their specific uh, wines and beers and spirits. Um, we have all that stuff at the festival, but it's, you know, here's, here's where, what times you can go eat. And we will have spirits available here, but not specifically what you're asking for. Because it's, it's a huge cost to the festival to do that. Um, and, and they're generally very um, happy to get whatever we've got, um, as long as they know in advance. Um, other things that you, you, you have to check for everything on the contract. You have to check to make sure the money's right, the rooms are right, um, every little detail. And I, I was telling you yesterday that I'm kind of famous for, for you know, redlining a lot of things because um, we can't do all these things that they're asking and we have a, an addendum to the contract that we create saying, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get, you know, meals at this time. You know, here's who you're going to talk to about your production needs. We, um, and we generally, if they need backline, we get them backline. We're very accommodating. We just can't do the specifics, and that's what we tell them. Like red M&Ms only. Right. You're going to have some blue ones mixed in there at the <laughs> festival. And you're going to like it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, it seems to me you need to be highly organized. Yes. To do any of this stuff. You have to be detail-oriented and highly organized. And, you know, Merlefest taught me that because at Merlefest you're dealing with, you know, like 90 different bands or more. And to uh, handle all the detail for those bands coming into the festival is a lot of detail. Um, but it's fun. I, I love that part of it. I love, you know, having all the information and distributing the information and making everybody have a good experience when they come to the festival. Mm -hmm. And for contracts, do you have to have a little bit of contract law or anything? No, no not really. Some, there might be things that you want an attorney to check, you know, if, especially in your addendum. If you're, you know, you want an attorney to check your addendum just to make sure it's all legal. You know, there's not a lot of legal ease in it. Um, and, uh, you know, there are things I remember at Merlefest, there's a thing you, we crossed out that was like, um, you know, the artist can cancel this. Uh, the, the artist has the option of canceling, you know, 30 days in advance or something, because sometimes if it's somebody like, um, say, Kiefer Sutherland, he's got, um, 
you know, filming obligations sometimes. So if he's got to go film, he needs to get out of that contract and that gives them a chance to get out of the contract. So we, we would market, um, you know, that it was okay to do that, but the artist will make every effort to reschedule because mm-hmm. you want them to come back. You want, you know, you don't want them to just say, bye, I can't do this. You want to have, you know, sort of an end to having them back another time. And do you work with other venues, uh, festivals or um, small theaters or something in, as people are coming through the area, you get them jobs off or to the side or anything? I don't. That's more of a booking agent um, responsibility, I think. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm booking, but I'm not, I'm booking for the festival, not for the artist. Mm. Is that what you mean? Am I understanding Yes, right. So you represent the festival, not the artist. Yes. That would be your counterpart. Yes. And festival contracts um, or festivals in general have what we call a radius clause where, um, you know, you you stipulate that they can't play 150 to 200 miles within your radius. And, And generally a festival will say, I mean, I'm not saying they give you a range. They say it's 150 miles or it's 170 miles or it's 200 miles. And it's usually 30 days in front of the date and 30 days after the date because you don't want your headliners playing all over the area because you're going to lose ticket sales. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, we're flexible on that. Like sometimes young bands are like, you got 150 miles on here and we want to play, you know, 100 miles out. Is that okay? And and as long as I ask, and you know, we'll give them our blessing and say, "Yeah, go go right ahead and do that," because it it's not going to hurt us; it's going to help them. Right, right, okay. And hopefully, they'll give us a plug, and people will come to our festival to see them. Absolutely, <laughs> just to give them a caravan and come on over, right. or whatever. Now, you have a new project uh, that was held up this year because of of the pandemic, but uh, it's with Earl, the Earl Scruggs? The Earl Scruggs Music Festival. It'll be September 2nd through 4th in 2022 at the Tryon International Equestrian Center in Mill Spring, North Carolina, which is near Tryon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a beautiful um, equestrian center um, with um, covered seating and we're going to have it outdoors. Initially, we were planning on having it at their indoor arena. But because this year we couldn't do it indoors, we're moving it outdoors, and we're going to have you know a couple of stages. It's going to be um, half day Friday, all day Saturday, and a half day Sunday. Um, oh, um, and so, what what website do they go to to check this out? Um, Earl Scruggs Musical. I'm sorry, Earl Scruggs Music Festival. dot com or Earl Scruggs Fest. dot com. Let's talk about award show production. You've done that also. Mm-hmm. And um, how much different is that from working with the festivals and um, It's much more structured because you have to have a script writer and you have to um, have a very structured run of show. And everybody on the, on the crew has to go by the run of show. And you, you estimate how much time, um, you know, the... The presenters are going to have to present the award. You have to estimate how much time the people accepting the award are going to take, and that's a that's big a one. big one, right? It never works out. And um, but it's a lot of fun because um, you know it's it it, it it it's got a lot of moving parts, and it's 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 really kind of out of control once it hits the stage. You have a plan, 
but your plan, you know, goes south. You have two hours scheduled for that show, and it goes two and a half hours or three hours sometimes. And there's really nothing you can do to prevent it because people are getting awards for the work that they've done, and they're so excited and so thrilled, and you don't want to take their time away from them. In advance, you can tell everybody you've got two minutes or you've got three minutes. And only one of you in the band can speak, and then they all talk. Right, because they forget. It all goes out the window because they're so excited, and they, they all go up there and they want to give everybody a chance to talk because they're so excited. And, um, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. Can you imagine how terrible it would be if, if we were going, tapping our watches and going, get off the stage right now? I mean, that would just be mean. <laughs> right. So how do you deal with it? Doesn't, it doesn't matter. When you say it's a two-hour show, two hours because why? That's what has to fit into the radio part? Or well, we're not usually on television. The radio part is edited down to two hours. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things can be edited out, like clapping, just nonsensical things that don't need to be on the radio. The main things that go on the radio are you know, the presentation of the awards, the announcement of who wins the award, the acceptance speech of the award, and the performances. So all that has to be cut down to two hours. But the actual show is on paper is two hours, but or it could be an hour and a half, whatever you want to make it, but it never, ever <laughs> it happens that way. It usually goes over because of all the unknowns of how long somebody's going to take to speak. Well, some people might say, well, take out some of the performances, but I guess the performers, it, you know, if they're nominated yes. for Entertainer of the Year, they want to get up and strut their stuff. Yes. They're, all the Entertainers of the Year for IBMA, they... Uh, are, they get to perform. There are usually five of them, so they all have a performance slot. And then the others, I think we've had as many as 15 or 16 slots, so the others are just randomly picked um, based on, you know, the history. Have they ever done it before? You know, are they, you know, a favorite to win maybe? Um, you know, lots of different things go into which artists perform. Mm-hmm. Now, you're an independent contractor. If one of our listeners might need uh, your help in any of these areas, how do they get in touch with you? Um, My information is on my website, which is um, planningstages.net, and um, all my contact information is there, so that would be the easiest way to get in touch with me. Mm -hmm. And the services you offer for them are? Um, I consult with festivals, like if you want to plan a festival, um, we can, you know, look at the site, and, you know, I can give you... Um, an estimate on how, what it would take to help, help produce the show or the festival. Um, if you just need a certain aspect of it, like the booking, like I do for Gray Fox, um, we can talk about you know what what it would cost for me to you know do that for you. Um, and the, the the great thing about booking multiple events is that um, I have great relationships with many agents and artists and. Um, and it's, you know, that that's a really fun part of it, too, just the network of, you know, people that work in this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I can do award shows, awards shows and um, just a number of other things. They're listed on my website. Um, but, you know, I love working in this industry, and it's all about having fun. 
and people don't realize how much work goes into the show they're seeing. That's right, they don't. <laughs> that, that starts not only days before, weeks before, probably months in advance. It does. Uh, you know, uh, the Earl Scruggs Music Festival has been, because of COVID now, um, two or three years in the planning. And we've got another year and we're just starting to, you know, get some momentum and getting everything established in terms of, you know, um, how it's going to look because we've changed from inside to outside and, you know, a lot of, a lot of different changes have happened since the initial, um, talks. And what chances does a new festival or event, what are, what are the odds of them being successful or continuing for, you know, several years? That's a tough question, Katie. I think it all boils down to um, how well you take care of the artists, and the most important thing is your sound, um, because if your sound's not good, your audience isn't going to be happy, your artists aren't going to be happy. Um, you need a good marketing plan. You need to put some dollars into marketing, because if you don't market, nobody's going to come and buy tickets. You need to have a really great team um, you know, to make the decisions, I think. I don't want to be making all the decisions myself. I want to consult with, you know, other professionals in the field. Um, so, or on that team. And, and it's a lot more fun to do it that way because everybody brings different backgrounds and different experiences from the bluegrass world to the Americana world, different tastes. It's not all about you and your taste. It's about the audience and what they want to hear. And you want it to be diverse in terms of, you know, female artists, people of color, um, you know, men, uh, just lots of different, and styles of music. I mean, I think now, even at bluegrass festivals, you know, you can mix in some Cajun and some just different dance bands. Um, you know, it's all about just having a, a, an eclectic mix of everything. And that's how you're going to get a good audience. And that was Katie Daly talking with Claire Armbruster of Planning Stages Incorporated. For more information about Claire, event management, and Planning Stages Incorporated, visit the website at planningstages.net. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and katiedaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.